A quick note before we get started. Did you know we have an email list? Go to hpleadershippodcast.com and enter your email into the form at the bottom left to sign up. Get our PDF on common obstacles and teamwork sent right to your inbox. Subscribers get first listens on new shows and exclusive content. Sign up today, hpleadershippodcast.com. On episode 25 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Laura Boyd. There's a ton of research out there, right, that says the male doesn't have to know 90% of it. I think they have to know 60% of the job to feel they, they could do it. The female needs to know 90% of it, mm. uh, of a job, before they feel like they could actually do that job. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks for joining us. I'm Randy Lane. Today, we're talking to Laura Boyd. She's CEO of Leadership Delta, a leadership consulting company based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We ask her about how she got started, what kinds of companies she works with, and what it takes to be an effective leader. Laura also talks about her passion for helping millennial females develop into the leaders of tomorrow. And now our talk with Laura. Well, on today's show, we have Laura Boyd, and I'm really excited. I actually just got back from Minneapolis, her home. Uh, We did a two-day high-performance workshop together. We had a number of great organizations show up and and spend a couple of days with us. I think it went really well. Randy and I both are excited to have Laura on the podcast today because she can give us some insight on what she does in Minneapolis and the kind of organization she works with. So uh, again, welcome, Laura. We really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you, Chip. I, uh, I am excited to be here today. And actually, uh, I did have a great time with you in Minneapolis. And I'd have to say, I thought it was pretty successful. We it had, was. I, we had a good turnout. And I think the only thing that wasn't successful is I think people started to like you more than me. No, that's not the case at all. <laughs> I had more stage time. That's about it. You know, as we're kicking this off, why don't we start? Just tell us a little bit about your background. What's brought you to where you are right now? It really is because I think ever since I was born, I've had this leadership gift that I've been given. And I think people either are born with leadership skills, and I think people are born with maybe less leadership skills that they can develop. And for some reason, I have these gifts that I like to boss people around and and lead them in a certain (laughs) direction. That's a gift, right? Yeah. So (laughs) so, uh, I just, it was interesting because when I was talking about when I was 16, I became a head cashier. Of course, because I never take any position that's not going to give me in a leadership role. Mm -hmm. And I think ever since I've been 16, I've always been at the leadership level. I think that's the the interesting part. So I've learned ever since I was even just 16, trying to figure out how do you manage a group of people? And many of them, obviously, when I was at the grocery store and part time for that matter, they were all older than I was. So how do you get them to trust that you know what you're doing and that you're leading them in the right direction and you've got their backs and all those kinds of things? So that's kind of how it all began on my leadership path. But more so in the past five organizations I've belonged to, I've been at the executive level and have had leadership roles. And when I resigned from the state chamber about a year and a half ago, I kind of walked out the door and said, well, now what? What am I going to be when I grow up? I had to really think back to those five companies and say, well, what was the my most favorite part. 
And I think the, the biggest part was the leading and leading teams and motivating others. And I think that's the part I enjoy doing. And I actually have my master's in organizational leadership, which I got in the late 90s. So I obviously have had this passion for a long time. And it just caught up to me now to say, okay, this is the direction I'm going. I want to help other businesses. I want to help other business leaders. I want people to be more effective as team leaders. Yeah. So, you know, when you worked in the chamber and and some of your other roles and responsibilities, obviously you're around a lot of very effective leaders and you probably run into a couple of poor leaders along the way as well. What are some of the common characteristics that you've seen or maybe a, a leader that exemplifies what you would consider to be great leadership and then maybe vice versa that? I think that's a great question. I think that every leader has strengths and weaknesses, as we all know, right? And I think that the qualities of those leaders that I would put up on a pedestal have a really strong vision for where the organization is going. I think they have a huge trust with their team. And I also think that they've got the backs of their team. There's a lot of leaders out there that don't necessarily have each other's backs because they always want to look good. So instead of saying, I'm going to support you whether this is successful or not, I'm behind you on it. So those are, I think, the qualities of a good leader. Some of the qualities of a bad leader is where there isn't any vision. There's no strategy. Nobody knows the direction they're going. They may have it in their head, but they've never really communicated it to others. And I think that lack of trust is huge. I think lack of communication ties into the trust. Mm-hmm. And I've seen those leaders, too, and I think those leaders struggle. So what they have to rely back on is their personality. And then what happens with that is people don't know who they are from day to day. Who are they going to be? So once you have a vision and you've told everybody this is the direction we're going, it's easier to to keep going down that path, even if they come in as a different person. But if you don't have that, then you never know which way you're going. Yeah, absolutely. On a day-to-day basis, I know you work with a lot of different types of organizations. Are there any kind of starting points that you work with? Or is there any common denominators that you see in most organizations that when you get in there, these are the problems they're struggling with and and you kind of have a, a plan that you work with them on? Or is it all individualized and customized based on the companies that that hire you? Well, I think every company would want you to say you've got a customized plan Mm -hmm. because they all think they're so unique, which is awesome, right? They're so (laughs) proud of their organization. But I think really when it comes down to it, there are a lot of patterns that I've noticed in organizations that are trying to figure out how do they become bigger, better, smarter, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I see is that they grew just out of happenstance. The the owner worked his or her tail off and that organization grew. And now they got to a point where how do I get to the next level? They can't quite figure it out because the owner is still getting so involved in the minutia and the daily activities instead of trusting the rest of the team. The owner hasn't set a vision for the organization. And so they have it in their head, but they don't necessarily let anybody else know it. So those are the types of organizations that I find that I'm working with more Mm -hmm. is they come in and they say, you got to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know if uh, everybody's working the best that they can. And so we talk a lot about like, well, tell me more about that. Almost every time I find out that there's really no strategy in place. There's not, there isn't really good communication and the owner is leading as a one person team when it's a $45 million company Mm. and that's just not sustainable. Yeah. As a woman, do you find that it's easier, harder to work with other women who are leaders? Is it easier for you to work with men who are in a leadership role? Do you see any difference of organizations in terms of the way they hire you or treat you or work with you based on 
the fact that you're a woman in a leadership role? That's a loaded question. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've been thinking about this a lot. It's not meant to be loaded. I I know, right? (laughs) I think uh, part of the challenge is what I have now, I've been doing this for about just about a year. And it's interesting because I think that when I look at my partners that are females, female, and I look at my partners that are male, I think that male consultants have an easier time getting into the leadership team and having those opportunities where I think that the consultants at my level end up working at the HR level Mm. instead of at the ownership. And I think it's harder for them to break into that ownership type group. So from that aspect, I think it's harder. Working with a female or a male, I haven't seen any difference in the, the leadership on that for me personally. But breaking in, you think, is a little bit tougher. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think it's because they just shove you to the HR and talent management and development and that kind of thing. When you're like, well, time out. Let's look at the organization as a whole, not this these five people that you think have issues. Mm-hmm. So do you find yourself leaning more towards women-run organizations that have higher leadership you know, uh, roles inside of organizations or or not? I don't. No? Okay. I don't have that. I think just as an example, I think it's interesting. I had one professional service organization that said they had 30-something females that they wanted to keep and grow into partner roles. They said, so Laura, go work with them. Put a little group together and you get them. I want them to stay here at the organization. I said, well, what are you guys doing at the leadership level to make sure that once they change and modify their behavior, how are you going to keep them because if your leadership team is not on the same page well they're going to have all these tools and all this development and they're going to say wait a second i'm going to go to some other organization that actually appreciates what i'm doing as mm-hmm. a female yeah and so that was just kind of an interesting kind of conversation and aha for them to say oh yeah we probably do need to start at the top first and then start to work with those 30 something females yeah so many organizations i find you know they'll focus on one or the other they focus on the development of the organization itself strategy system process structure all those things and they tend to possibly forget the people side of the business or they heavily lean on developing the people side but they don't focus on how the organization's going to support the development of these people when they when they learn more they get better they right. understand more how is the organization going to support that so that they don't revert back to their old habits or worse, leave the organization after they've invested money to make them better? You know, they look at the organization and go, wow, I've, I've developed as a person personally. My team's getting better. I understand things a lot better, but the organization is not changing. It's still in a traditional mindset. I'm trying to move to become this high performing leader. And it's like dragging the organization with me. It's not working. I'd rather go just take my talent to a high performance organization that will continue to make me better. And so I completely agree with you hundred percent that you've got to work on both the organization and the people at the same time. Earlier when we were kind of doing our pre-interview here, we talked a little bit about, you know, you like working with leaders, but also the teams of people that work underneath those leaders. Do you have any special processes or, or development um, things that you like to kick off with and work with teams on? Yes, and I actually I'm working with a client right now. It's it's really fun because it's their it happens to be their marketing group, and so we have to reorganize our marketing group because the organization has grown past what the marketing group was and current and needs to be now. And so we've taken a step back to say, okay, what do we need? So it's almost like what do we need more of and what do we need less of? Mm-hmm. Right? We hear that all the time. 
And so it's really defining, this is what this team is going to do. So it's essentially the team charter. This is what we're going to be responsible for. This is what we're not going to be responsible for anymore. So as an organization, you need to figure out how these gaps are going to be filled. But then once you do that, and then you have a leader in there saying, okay, these are our initiatives for this year. You map those out. Okay, now who's responsible for each of those initiatives? And that's really, I think people get excited because now they're empowered because they own something also that hopefully would filter up into the organization's strategy and the direction they're going. But that's been really fun and challenging because you still have old paradigms and old behaviors of, okay, marketing team, I need you to you know, put these invites in, in these envelopes. Well, okay, I think an administrative role is better for that where we want more high-level marketing mm-hmm. for this particular team. So that's really it. It's, it's figuring out what we want to do more of, what we want to do less of, coming up with a charter essentially, figure out who's responsible for it, and then really diving in and letting those people be empowered for making decisions and actually making mistakes. That's one of my favorite parts about being on a team because if you have trust among your team and you make a mistake, it's not like they're just going to pluck you off the team and throw you on overboard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really important, um, and especially for this particular client that I'm working with, because some people have been there for 15 years. Oh, yeah. You've mentioned it multiple times now, and it's a reoccurring theme, and that is to work effectively on a team, it's got to be rooted in trust. And so right. do you start with, okay, we're a team and we're you know, we have a charter and things that we need to do, but before we can even begin to work together, we have to learn to trust each other. And what does that look like? And what, what responsibilities do we have as team members to, to build the trust? Right. And we haven't quite got there. We actually went a little backwards. And that's kind of the, because of course they bring you in for this because they want you to fix it. So mm-hmm. then you start with that and then you start opening up all these other things. <laughs> and then they realize, oh, we got to do this. So that trust component is going to come when we start really defining the, the charter of what it is we want to do and what we don't want to do. Because I think uh, there have been so many overlaps within this organi- this particular team. And so it's just a matter of figuring out who's doing what and then trusting that that person is going to be able to take it on and, and roll with it. And then we can go through the, the whole trust series, which I'm super excited about because I think trust is a foundation. Actually, if you look at um, Patrick Lencioni's, his foundation is trust. Oh, right? yeah. He talks about the five phases of a team and the foundation has to be trust. Yeah. I Matter of fact, Right before this podcast, I was reading a, a new Harvard Business Review case study that just came out, and it said that one in every three employees does not trust their current leadership. And the reason why they don't trust them is for a litany of reasons, and we can go through all of them. But they're saying that, as, as I've said on other podcasts, that employees quit bosses, they don't quit companies, and that leadership is about a relationship with that person, and relationships have to start with a foundation of trust. And trust is the bedrock. That's where it starts and everything else goes from there. So if there's a breakdown in trust and lack of trust, how can you work as a team? How, If a leader sets the vision, but the employees don't trust the leader, then it doesn't even matter what the vision is if there's a lack of trust. Everything kind of revolves around that. So if you're working with a team and you can tell that there's not trust and communication between the members of the team, how do you start and foster that? So I think that the key part is really surveying the team and figuring out what their personal trust is and then also how others see them, right? Because I think sometimes we have misperceptions of, well, everybody trusts me. And then all of a sudden, 
you get feedback from others saying, oh my goodness, I am actually lacking trust among this team. <laughs> and then you, that's kind of the, the start of it all to figure out that self-awareness piece on the trust. And it happens at all the levels within the team. And so that's the conversations you have around it. And then now how do we fix it? And a lot of times I'd have to say a lot of times trust or mistrust within the teams is because of their lack of vision and lack of who's doing what. And I think that becomes more of the challenge as well as if the leader doesn't hold people accountable to getting things done. That's where the trust, distrust actually comes into play. Mm-hmm. Because then there's no consequences and then people get mad. Well, I, I'm just going to do it myself instead of having to explain how to do this because I know he or she's not going to do it as well as I can do it. Or they don't even understand what we're doing. It's all those kinds of things. Or they're fearful of losing their job. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of those different kinds of components, I think, that fall into it. So, yeah, and this actually, this marketing team, they're very good. I mean, again, they've been there for a long time and they're very smart, but they've been doing a lot of tactical kinds of things. And if we're really going to step up and be the marketing team that we have to, to take this business to the next level, we might have to make some changes and adjust some people's responsibilities or find somebody that has a different strength for what we're looking for. In a typical engagement like this one, do you work with them monthly, weekly? Is it, is it more coaching? Is it hands-on? What kind of give me a picture of what you do with them? So it is, it's on a monthly basis. Um, it's actually on a weekly basis. So I actually go into their office uh, one day a week and then I'm around 24-7 and respond to emails and work from home and all those kinds of things. But I actually have a weekly team meeting. They haven't had those in a long time. Hmm. So it's just about figuring out what the priorities are and this is the direction we're going. So I typically work more on a retained relationship, mm-hmm. but my whole goal is to get myself out of a job. So it's enough to build these people to figure out how to do it on their own so I can step out and be more maybe as a coach. But initially it comes in more as a consultant. Yep. Helping them with the system, the structure, the process, communication, trust, all of it. It's like one big package. Right. Yep. Yes. You could call me one big package (laughs) with a bow on it. You know, going back and we talked just a minute ago about this one client, but if you were to outline the type of organizations you want to work with or you like working with over the past handful of years in your career, not just specifically with this, but with what you, you know, you've done over the years, what kind of clients do you like? Which ones do you resonate the best with? I think my most favorite, and it's probably because my career has been in professional services and business services, that would probably be my most favorite type of industry to work in. And I think part of it is because, oh, I, I, I got to say most of it's because I'm used to it. I mean, that's been my whole career is being in professional services. And so I know some of the idiosyncrasies with if you've got multiple partners, you've got multiple bosses, who's really calling the shots, those kinds of things. So there's a lot of challenges that come with that. And is that's there a lot of those challenges. A lot of common denominators from one professional services firm to the next. Absolutely. And again, everybody loves to say that their company is unique, which again, I'm excited about because we want them to think that. But there are so many of the same types of issues in professional services. And I got to imagine same as manufacturing or technology, they'd have the same kinds of issues. What are some typical ongoing issues that every professional services firm has that for whatever reason, they can never seem to get resolved without help? I think one of the biggest ones I see for professional services is they promote based on technical expertise. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is they've got these people and how you move up is by being technically competent. 
And what they don't do is develop their people on how to actually lead groups of people. So they'll put them in a manager role and have them say, okay, you got these 13 people that report to you, but we're not going to give you any tools to necessarily know how to do it. Or they've gone to a training, a one day training, and then that, that should do it, right? You got that book, you can just pull it out if you need it. And then the other part that comes along with when they move into these manager leader type roles is that they still have a stigma because when you come in as a peer with others at the same time, and let's say you moved up because technically you were competent, they don't see you as a leader. They see you still as a peer. So they Mm -hmm. haven't coached these young men and women on how to be a leader from an inside, not coming from the outside saying, now I'm the VP of all of you or, you know, so I think that's the biggest challenge. I also think that they're so technically competent, those organizations that the people piece kind of goes away. Like, well, you should just do it. You're getting a paycheck. This is just what you do. Mm. And so some of those kinds of things, I think, slip to the wayside. Yeah. The, the emotional intelligence side of it. So you use more of the logical side, the competent technical side and they lack some of the emotional intelligence side that it takes to, to lead others. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. And they're being promoted that way. And we've talked right. about this a lot, Chip, where you say, you know, you have the person that is really good at their job and you make them the manager because they're good at their job. Well, maybe they were really good at their job, but really terrible at managing people, at leading people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And competence, which is a component of trust. You, you have to be able to do your job and be competent or people won't trust you in that role is only a component of being able to lead others. It's not the component. But I agree with Laura. There's way too many organizations that promote based on tenure, competency, technical skill. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's based off of friendship and who hangs out with the the cool kids at lunch kind of thing, Mm -hmm. where if we're really looking at an organization and promote based off of the overall team, it's going to be someone who is technically competent but also has that ability to to lead through trust and communication and has a high level of emotional intelligence, doesn't lack awareness, uh, all of those components. So I, and I can see that. So if we were to kind of, and we're not going to talk about industry specific, but my mind, when I think professional services, I think CPAs, for example, attorneys, architects, uh, any type of, which takes a lot of brain power to do what they do. They're very, you know, you got to be a really smart person to do all three of those things that I just talked about. Got to have some learning. Yeah. Do you, but do you believe that maybe there's a correlation between people that are extremely book smart, maybe get a lot of recognition and self-worth out of being really, really smart so they lack the want to or willpower or ability to focus on the emotional intelligence side? Well, I, th- I think that could be part of it. I think that there are people, though, that do have that book smart that should remain in the book smart side. So I'm a firm believer in let's get everybody in the right seat. So if you're a really good rainmaker, as they say in professional services, right, you're very good at sales, keep doing that. If you're really good at technical, keep doing that. If you're really good at leading people, then let's do that. I think they just keep putting them all in these boxes that, okay, if you're going to be a partner here, you've got to rainmake and you've got to lead and you also have to be technically competent. Those are Three kind, three really different personalities. Oh, yeah. And so that's where I, I keep telling everybody, it's okay if you've got a technical person, just compensate it accordingly. Because I think that's part of the challenge, too. They're like, well, they have to rain make in order to make more money. And so then that's where the compensation piece comes into play. But I truly believe that 
you've got to put the right people where their skill sets are mm-hmm. and their strengths. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, the, the multiple skills. But yesterday I was listening to a different podcast. Lance Armstrong has one. He had Malcolm Gladwell on as a guest. And uh, they were talking about what it takes to be a triathlete or a, uh, there was another one where you do multiple different skills. And he paralleled that with being an entrepreneur. And he said, it's really interesting if you do one thing, like if you're a cyclist, you focus all of your energy and you become a world-class cyclist like Lance Armstrong, for example. But to be a triathlete, you have to work on multiple different skills at the same time. So you have to try and be good at lots of things to compete overall talked about that with entrepreneurship or someone in a high level leadership role where you got to run an organization. You have to trust that people on your team that aren't as competent as you are to do the job that you need them to do because you have multiple things that you're responsible for. So I gave examples of someone who's an incredibly good writer who gets promoted up into journalism and he has people on his team that aren't as good as he is at writing but he has to learn to be able to accept what they do instead of trying to hold on to all of it and saying, look, let me just rewrite this whole thing because it'd be better if I do it. A leader has to kind of look at all of those aspects. And to Laura, to your point, when you're in professional services and you're really good at this technical side, it's got to be harder to step away and let other people do it uh, because of that gap of nervousness of letting go of it. Well, it's hard because if you're someone who's very technically proficient at something, you may also be a perfectionist Mm -hmm. and you really don't want somebody else doing something because you're afraid they're going to mess something up. I mean, I have that issue all the time here. I'm like, (laughs) you know, that was really good and it's 100% passable, but I really want to tweak these 10 things because I feel like it'll make it better. But I have to say, no, that's not my job right now. That is true. And actually, if you look at the, if you talk to those triathletes, and I'm sure they talked about this on the, the podcast or whatever you're listening to, but they will typically excel in one of those three areas. So if they're, mm-hmm. if running is their thing, they're still going to go overboard to get the best time they can get. And then they're going to be mediocre at these other two. Mm-hmm. It, but you're looking at the average. Is. Yeah, you're looking at the average right. of the three. And what Lance Armstrong said on his podcast is, you know, he knew cycling was going to be good, but he was going to try and work on these other. He said he worked on his weaknesses. We're in, in the work world. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you, you delegate your weaknesses and you really just focus on your strengths. But it, when you're a triathlete, you have to work on your weaknesses. You don't have a choice because you're it's part of the overall package. And so you don't want me doing your taxes. I promise you that or <laughs> being your accountant or an attorney. And you don't want me to be your architect either. So, but if I was responsible for leading people inside of any of those industries, it is going to require the common denominators of how to run a team and build trust and communicate. And so those are universal skill sets that everybody needs to be able to, to master. Well, Laura, what, let's talk about what you see moving forward for your, your career, your business, and the organizations you work with. What does one year, three years, five years look, for, look like for you? That's a very good question also, Chip. It's funny because when I started this business, I just assumed it was just going to be me. And then now as I've gotten into this, I miss having a team mm-hmm. just to collaborate. And so I think at some point in the next one to three years, I hope to expand into having other partners here close 
in Minneapolis to work together on different initiatives. Because if you start talking about some of those skill sets, I might not be good at everything that I think an organization needs to do. So I want to find skill sets that offset where my skills aren't quite up to par. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing. I, I have more issues than I have strengths. And so I think that that's a key part is to figure out what those are and then fill in those gaps. So I, I don't know if I necessarily have it figured out like I want to make $100 million in revenue and that kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. uh, it's more around the people side. Yeah. Like who can offset my, my skill set? Hmm. The the vertical of professional services is where you've played. Do you want to get outside of that? Do you want to try and work with other types of organizations? I do. Well, so I have um, professional services, and I have had a couple of manufacturing people contact me. I actually think that there are better manufacturing consultants out there than I am, so I usually I will defer them to somebody else. But one of the things I'm also seeing, especially in in Minneapolis, is the healthcare. So I have a couple of healthcare clients too. Mm. And it's so intriguing because that whole world to me is so challenging. And so what I'm finding is I'm attracted to the professional services just because my background, but healthcare, because it's intriguing and it's, there's a lot to do there. I think a lot of work to be done. That's where I'm seeing probably where I'll continue to move. I do have a strong passion for female executives and how to build up these millennial females with the right tools. And not necessarily that they need these development tools, but I think the millennial group in general is struggling because they are being asked to be in these leadership roles and, again, not giving any development or any tools. And the reason I bring out the females is because I think I've always been passionate about how do we get more females in the top-level executive because we're still we're still not there, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to continue to, to produce high-level, qualified female executives, professionals, essentially. And that just happens to be my personal passion. I know that diversity is a huge issue, too, that organizations have got to step up and figure out how to get more diversity within their organizations, or they're not going to survive. And I just read something about Minneapolis-St. Paul in particular, but they were talking about this is the first time the first-grade class has higher people of color than they do white. Yeah, It's interesting. That's where organizations have got to figure out how to embrace the diversity and, and run for it. So that's kind of my, I get excited about that. Yeah. I'm a little too passionate. but Well, and when I was up there last week, you know, we the group of people that came to the workshop, you had some very talented women in that room that have potential or are currently in leadership roles and I met some of them that I would be, I would love to attract talent like that was in the room last week to work in my organization. And so finding those types of people and developing them and turning them into even more effective leaders than what they already are, I can see why you get passionate about it. I do. And it's actually interesting because I must attract them too, because I have six mentees that I'm working with. Now that's my pro bono work, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm doing that. And I, and I do, I love it because these, these young females are coming to me and then I think, gosh, I'm getting old. So it's just kind of interesting how you can work with that group and still utilize the same tools. So what are the questions these mentees come to you with? They talk a lot about how do you balance work and life? And I keep reminding them that's never going to happen. So do not strive for balance. It is a blend. And I I keep talking about that is this blend piece. And I also think it's really interesting. And I'm going to do a study on this someday. But from the time kids leave confirmation to the time they leave college, 
there's a flip that happens between males and females. And I can say this because my son just went through confirmation and those young women in eighth grade, they were so confident when they gave their testimonies, they stood up and they had no qualms about them. They were just everything about them was confidence. And then you'd get to those eighth grade boys and they were total like, well, the rock, paper, scissors, who's going first? And, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm like, you guys are a bunch of goofballs. And I could say that again, because my son was in it. But then I meet with these young, because I have a lot of friends that their kids are graduating from college. So they say, hey, can you meet with my son or daughter? And I do. And it's amazing the shift that happens when I meet with these sons and daughters. Those sons are more confident and those daughters are less confident than I've ever seen. And I think part of it is there's a ton of research out there, right, that says the male doesn't have to know 90% of it. I think they have to know 60% of the job to feel like they, they could do it. The female needs to know 90% of it, mm. uh, of a job, before they feel like they could actually do that job. And that's the difference, where that's the confidence level, where we don't feel like we can just jump in. And actually, not to bring up the presidential piece, you can cut this, but I'm just saying, <laughs> if you look at Hillary Clinton, she is well prepared because, again, that's the female piece. She's got to have all her ducks in a row, regardless of what you think of her. Whereas the male, Trump, doesn't necessarily have to have all of his ducks in a row and doesn't really have all of the statistics and the information that Hillary does. So I always just think that's interesting because it's been interesting to watch. So would you say that men should prepare more or women don't need to stress so much and prepare less? I think both. I think both. Because I keep telling these young women, I'm like, you can do this job. You have the basic foundations of what this job requires as an, at an entry level. I mean, these kids are 22. And they're just like, well, I don't know. Well, try it. Just try it. You don't know. I mean, when I got out of college, there were no jobs. We were in a recession. And so I took whatever I could get. Well, I ended up being a hiring and training coordinator for, you know, I think it was like a 300-person call center. I didn't know how to do that. But I learned and I figured it out. And that's the piece I think that females need to do a better job of. I feel like a lot of jobs too, what you your skill set is may not be exactly what that job needs when you initially get hired. And especially like coming from a college degree, it may not translate exactly to a job that you really could do well. You just have to kind of learn it and grow into it. Right. And that's the technical skills. So it goes back to consulting and and really bringing in what I'd say the soft skills. They always call them the soft skills, right? This leadership, which just cracks me up. But those are the pieces that I think these younger millennials are missing. They've got a lot of the technical skill sets, but they don't have a lot of the soft leadership skill sets. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's always going to be the case. I mean, generation after generation after generation, our education system focuses on the technical side. They teach them the that component of it. And the, the soft skills, quote, uh, end quote, soft skills is something you learn outside of the classroom. That's that's why I'm a big proponent of sports and social activities and church and everything else, because you learn a lot of those soft skills outside of the classroom. And it's interesting. We we make sure that our kids know these technical skills because we, we want them to have the best job, the best future. But as you as it goes higher up the ladder, it's the soft skills are the ones that are making the difference. You have to know how to manage the people that have the technical skills. That's the that's the higher, safer job sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my really good friends, I love this quote, right? He says, the uh, A students end up working for the C students. <laughs> it's the truth. And it, it's just amazing. And I, it could be, I it, don't know. It, it, well, statistically, you'll see it all the way through. It's usually that way that the class clown ends up managing all the straight A students, uh, <laughs> you know, later in life. And it's because of that emotional intelligence side that yep. we we don't put enough emphasis on it at the young age that we should. If, if I 
was in charge, if I could wave a magic wand and change our education system, I wouldn't de-emphasize the technical side, but I would greatly increase the amount of emotional intelligence, trust, communication. That would be core to the classroom learning. And that history and social studies and you know, trigonometry and all this stuff that I know, and I'm just speaking from a personal level, I cannot tell you the last time I used anything that I learned around trigonometry or algebra or any of those in a day-to-day environment. I can tell you, though, that being able to communicate effectively, look people eye to eye, build trust, work in a team environment, understand, you know, how to harness bad behavior in other people, but not look bad at the same time, those skills... Man, if, if, again, if I was in charge and could wave a magic wand from kindergarten all the way through, that would be core curriculum. And everything that we consider core right now would be extracurricular. Let me put this out there, see what you guys think. So I think, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're going off script now, boy. Here we go. Yes. So I think that people are not thrown into a leadership role a real, you know, you have to get this done. Here are your resources and your people early enough. I think they kind of meander in the entry level or the no responsibility zone for too long. And they get up into their late 20s, early 30s, even middle 30s before they have any sort of concrete responsibility. This is what you need to get done. What do you think? Well, I don't know, Laura, with women you're mentoring right now, what age range are we looking at? I would say they're all in their early 30s, I would say. Are they in leadership roles yet? I have half of them are leadership roles and half. I mean, it's hard to say what's a leadership role, but sure. for the what we deem as leadership role, I would say half are in the leadership role. And there's, they have young families. So that's the whole other side of it, too, and battling with that. Yeah, trying to figure that out. Now, for, for better or worse, and I'm maybe biased here, but you know, I'm ex-military, and I was in charge of a shop of people at 19, 20 years old. I think that's something that's beneficial and that a lot of people don't get until they're in their 30s. But see, you're, you're an oxymoron because you look at, I didn't emphasize moron, I just <laughs> act oxymoron. And that is that you are in a leadership role in a very traditional type of structure. Yeah. And so that might look different where a leadership role in a very non-traditional workplace, which is what organizations are morphing to. And so it's, it's interesting how that might play out. But I just like the idea of saying, you know, you're young and this, these are your responsibilities and these are what, this is what's expected of you with the resources you have. Get it done. Mm-hmm. Actually, my son's high school has a leadership academy that they have to apply for. And they've had a record number of people apply this year. They had 40 kids out of 350 wow. apply for this leadership academy. So they're breaking it up into two. And I get the privilege of actually teaching a couple of the sessions, so I'm cool. super excited about that. My son is not as excited, but I am excited <laughs> about it. Of course not. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing, and one of the business development persons from the school went to the two-day event, and mm-hmm. so she and I were talking about what curriculum would make sense for this this age level, and her biggest thing was the, the key moments and mm-hmm. your response. And again, right, that's emotional intelligence and a lot of it's self-awareness and how are you going to respond to people even though you have these internal and external things, you know, battling inside, what's your response going to be? Sure. So, yeah, because anyway. it's those paradigms. It, when you 
that key moment, you know, is it fear, duty or achievement or integrity? And, and how does that filter turn into your brain and, and kick out the result? So, yeah, I, I would agree. That's very important at that age for sure. Good. Well, let me ask you, you know, obviously we're big believers in podcasts and reading books and studying and everything else. Is there anything you are listening to right now or reading that you think other people would be interested in? Anything that sticks with you that you go to on a regular basis? I read your book, Chip, and I listen to your podcast. Randy well, thank was you very much. I'm a big fan, so I do listen to it every time there's a new one out there. And then I also like the uh, leadership and self-deception. And the reason I mm-hmm. like that is because it's easy. It's an easy read, not because I can't handle a hard read, but <laughs> I like it because it's an easy read and you can put yourself in there professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. I do like that. I do. I love podcasts and I, I am listening to Entree Leadership and I'm also listening to How Does She Do It, hmm. which is that's a phenomenal one, too. I'm, I'm just going to make sure I got the right one here. Yeah, how not, she really does it. Sorry, how she really. How does she? It. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. I love those kinds of things. I love podcasts because I love working out, so I just plug in. I listen to that, and or I'm walking the dog. I mean, I constantly have space, so I might as well fill it with learning. Podcasts. Yeah. How do people find you? They can go to leadershipdelta.com and Le- LinkedIn also. Okay, so Leadership Delta—that's the name of your organization—and the website's leadershipdelta.com. Yes, and you will remember Leadership Delta because I'm going to tell you that I believe leadership is the delta between failure and success of an organization. Awesome. I like it. I agree. Okay, well, thank you very much. We appreciate it, and uh, we'll be talking to you very soon. And uh, hopefully 2017 is an incredible year for all of us. I know I'm excited about what's going to happen, and I know you're going to do incredibly great things in 2017. So we're excited. We're going to bring you back for another podcast you know, maybe middle way through next year and kind of get an update on what's happening and what you're doing and and how it's growing. Okay? Sounds good. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at HPL underscore podcast and shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.